0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Enantech Podcast. This is Podcast 40, our CES coverage. Now, unfortunately, we did take and record a podcast at the show itself. Um, the audio is pretty much unrecoverable. So, this is a post-show recording where I'm going to be bringing on the editors one at a time, um, as they've been available since the show's ended. And we're going to speak about some of the stuff that we all saw. Um, Mostly more the sort of the interesting stuff than perhaps maybe the headline topics. But I know a few of the guys really wanted to talk about things that made them go, that's rather interesting. Um, Ryan's going to join me in a bit, but I wanted to uh, start off the uh, podcast first. And I'm going to talk about the launch of the new KB Lake. Uh, generation of processors. This is Intel's 7th generation uh, of the core microarchitecture and it's the first time that they've done the optimization step in their new process architecture optimization methodology. Now what this means is that well, optimization itself is pretty vague as a term but in Intel's way this this time around it means we have exactly the same microarchitecture as a 6th generation uh, Skylake, so there's no IPC increase. There's no increase for the number of instructions per clock that the uh, processors will do. So a three gigahertz Skylake performs pretty much identically to a three gigahertz Kaby Lake. But what they have done here is that they've essentially relaxed the strain on the on the silicon itself. Um, typically, they make things very dense to decrease die area but that has trade-offs such as power generation, but does make it cheaper to actually produce the dyes. Now, Intel is saying that the new generation processors still have the same density, but they're relaxed, so it copes with heat generation better, and this in turn has given them a better voltage frequency profile on the silicon. That in turn means that for what happened with Skylake, you can now buy an equivalent Kaby Lake processor that's about 300MHz faster for the same price. As a result of that, the launch during CES involved all their desktop line SKUs and a significant portion of their mobile SKUs. We did reviews of the two main desktop parts, the i7 overclockable part, the i7 7700K, and the i5 7600K. Um, those reviews are on the website. I fully encourage you to go look at those. We also did an overview of the platform as a whole, uh, taking into account, you know, the improvements for 14 nanometer plus process. Uh, there's also a little bit in there about a uh, speed shift version two. This is the way that Intel brings up from a idle frequency to the peak frequency much faster than before, um, and it's the second generation of this new technology. Again, fully encourage you to read that. But we did the i7 and the R5 reviews. Um, the i7, uh, quad-core with hyperthreading, base 4.2GHz, turbos up to 4.5GHz. Out of the box, it performs better than a slightly overclocked Devil's Canyon, um, so we have a new performance champion in the i7. Then that will be retailing for about $350. The uh, list price is about 310 So once you add on a little bit of um, your profit margin for the retailers, we're looking at about 350 The i5, 7600K. Now this is the quad core without hyperthreading. This one actually surprised me more um, because the i7, when we did it through our... Um, CPU AVX testing uh, now this is a 91 watt TDP part um, now TDP thermal design power stands for how much power how much the cooling has to cope with the heat generation of the processor not necessarily power consumption but it is a pretty good metric uh, nonetheless now for a 91 watt part that provo- that consumed 90 watts um, so as expected that was just purely based on the CPU you can argue that The TDP encompasses the GPU as well, Um, but for a performance part like this, the GPU is not typically used uh, by prosumers. But again, going back to the i5, this is the i5 7600K is also a 91 watt TDP part, but in our power testing, it only uh, achieved 63 watts, and this surprised me a lot, especially for an AVX load. AVX instructions are typically very uh, very dense, they they generate a lot of heat, sorry, and can cause a processor to fall to its knees if it's not properly configured. So the i5, the 3.8 gigahertz base, 4.2 gigahertz turbo hits 63 watts for a 91 watt TDP. That's pretty energy efficient if you ask me. And as a result it actually got out, um, recommended over the i7 for people who are interested in uh, the new KB lake processors because with, with the price difference is about a hundred bucks and then given the fact that it uh, produces less heat at stock, uh, you could probably save another, you know, twenty five, fifty bucks on a cooler and that hundred and fifty bucks for especially for somebody who's very price conscious with their system can go to a GPU upgrade, a memory upgrade, or a storage upgrade. In our in the review we listed that processor as, you know, the the one that the smart money goes on. Now, along with Cable Lake, we also have 200 series motherboards, and over 80 motherboards have been released through all the manufacturers, and we're going to do a preview of essentially all of those, a visual inspection on uh, where the chipset, where the chipsets and what controllers are on. Now, if you're that interested in motherboards, as perhaps I am, and I'm perhaps the only one that's that interested in motherboards, the new features for the chipset aren't particularly exciting. We have Optane memory support. Now, um, Optane memory being Intel's version of 3D crosspoint on caching and not storage or DRAM. It's they've kind of screwed up the naming system there. But Optane memory ready is the logo that's going onto the motherboards. And there's also for the uh, Z270 chipset. Uh, there's Four more high-speed I.O. lanes, um, which means four more PCIe lanes for extra functionality off the chipset. That doesn't mean much unless you have added controllers. And for me, the more exciting thing about the chipset is actually the evolution of the controllers. Now, along with the launch, there's essentially three or four interesting controllers to go along uh, with the new motherboards. First one up, I guess, is the there's a new Realtek audio codec. Um, a new high-end one called the ALC-1220. This this essentially is another step up over the ALC-1150, which we saw on pretty much every motherboard over $120 uh, for the 100 series. And the main improvement here is that it brings the line-in recording uh, SNR, signal-to-noise ratio, support up to 113 uh, dB. It used to be about 95 so we had 120 uh, dB SNR out and 95 in. With the 1220, it moves to 120 and 113. Now, along with the ALC 1220, the ASUS have a specialized version called the ALC 1220A. Um, this is a customized version that they've worked with Realtek for, and the there aren't that many changes to it. It essentially takes some of the hardware off the silicon and creates a smaller silicon die for less power and making it a little bit cheaper, because um, these audio codecs aren't just used in consumer-grade motherboards and PCs, so they decided, well, we can take some stuff out of that, and uh, they have an exclusive on on those uh, ALC-1220A chips. When we get to the reviews, we'll obviously have a look at um, both and see how they perform. Along with the audio codec, we have new... Um, new Ethernet uh, controllers to play with. Um, Rivet Network's killer released their E2500 chip to uh, supersede the E2400. That technically came out in September, and we saw a couple of 100-series motherboards, particularly from MSI, with it on. We're going to see pretty much every killer enabled motherboard for the 200-series using the E2500 and the main thing here is that it's more forward-looking in terms of support. So Linksys announced a router with um, killer network support to deal with priority traffic over a network. The 2500 helps enable that. There's also a new software package to go along with it. And we've actually um, been talking back and forth with the Rivet Network guys on that software platform to make sure it's user-readable and uh, more instinctive to uh, their previous software, which was which was dire. but that was actually as a result of the partnerships uh, they had at the time while being under the Qualcomm brand. So E2500 will be seeing that proliferate a lot through the 200 series motherboards. But on the networking side, we'll also see a Quantia um, play a role. Now, back in December, Quantia announced the AQC 107 and 108. These are multi-gigabit Ethernet controllers supporting 2.5 and 5-gigabit Ethernet over standard RJ45 connectors. Um, the AQC 107 uh, supports 10-gigabit as well. And we actually saw a gigabyte uh, launch a PCI... or at least showcase a PCIe card at CES with that controller on board. But the goal here is... They can do 2.5 and 5 gigabit ethernet uh, for cheaper than the 10 gigabit controllers uh, such as the Intel um, X55082 which is about an extra $150 on the cost of a motherboard or $250 if you want a dual port card. Quantia said that the prices for their chips uh, for 2.5 and, and 5 gig uh, will be a lot cheaper than that and they expect the ecosystem with consumer grade switches um to come out through over 2017 and into 2018. Currently, we've only had two motherboards announced uh, from ASRock with the chip on board, and like I say, Gigabyte is launching a PCIe card, hopefully, and we expect a few more motherboards to start playing in this space. These network controllers also do one gigabit, so they go perfectly fine into a standard network, but the design here is to be future-proof for not that much more than a standard Intel Gigabit NIC, um, and not much more power draw, so that's going to be interesting. Also on the controller side, we have the uh, Asmedia 2142 controller. This is a new USB 3.1 Gen 2, so 10 gigabit per second controller. Now, we have had the ASM 1142 on motherboards up to this point, and that uses uh, one PCIe lane to give two USB 3.1 ports that effectively limits the peak the combined speed of the two ports if used in conjunction what the A- what the ASM uh, 2142 the new upgraded chip does is it has two PCI lanes input so now you can get full speed from both ports at the same time and the fact that the chipsets now have so many PCI lanes um, off of off of it uh, this pretty much no penalty for using the uh, 2142 chip Now, the 2142 chip also supports um, moving the USB 3.1 off the motherboard into a front panel. Um, So I know that a couple of the motherboard manufacturers are now playing around with front panel connectors such that case manufacturers, when they start to start putting USB 3.1 port, 3.1 Gen 2 ports on their cases, uh, they can just put the connector in and get a USB 3.1 Gen 2 port. Um, so we're going to see that playing out as well in the motherboard space but KB Lake as a whole um, I think the important thing here is now I know a lot of uh, websites trashed the processes and reviews saying oh there's no innovation anymore the CPU market from my perspective is a case of well it's for the people who are looking to upgrade uh, not necessarily the people who want to stay at the forefront of the technology every generation if you're upgrading every year then you are a special case I'm sorry to say, but that is that is the truth. It's the people who you know still have Sandy Bridge, uh, who still have Nahalem, who still have Core 2, who are saying, okay, I actually need to upgrade. I want PCIe Gen 3. I want the latest USB protocols. I want Thunderbolt. I want M.2 uh, Drive. I want PCIe Storage. I want U.2 uh, Connectivity. They're the people who are upgrading not necessarily the people who still have Devil's Canyon, who still have Haswell, who still have Skylake, or if you happen to get Broadwell, lucky you. So I think we have to accept that this is a state of play with the paradigm shifting. There is no paradigm shift anymore in uh, modern CPU x86 architecture. What Intel have is very tuned, um, and we see that you know given AMD's Ryzen, uh, architectural details it's not a complete copy paste there are un- there is unique ip in there um but that's the pretty much the way we're going and anybody expecting more than a few percent ipc increase year on year are, are going to be very disappointed in the next you know 3 to 5 years depending on how um new process nodes turn out but Lake, it's there if you need to upgrade and it works perfectly fine now we we do ha- one of the new things with the KB Lake was the uh, overclockable i3 processor. We haven't done our full review yet, as I'm speaking about this, um, but we have taken all the data, and all of our data is in our benchmark database. And actually, what's surprising there for me is, as I'll explain in the review, is that there are so there are quite a few benchmarks where the i3 7350K is basically on parity with the i7 2600K. Now that's the i7 Sandy Bridge CPU that a lot of people are still on. For single thread performance, the i3 blows it out of the water, being 4.2 GHz and you know four four generations worth of architecture ahead. Um and on the multi threaded stuff, uh, the i3 is a dual core with hyper threading, the i7 is a quad core with hyper threading, so the i7 has double the threads to play with. But actually, the i3 can sort of be within 20% performance, which is interesting. Um, and if we look at something that's very scalable, like a POV-Ray, which is a ray tracing program, if the i3 was at 55 gigahertz, it'd be overtaking the i7 2600K. So at some point in the near future, I think there's going to be a parity between the i7 2600K and the i3 Overclockable part, and the benefits there is well, if you buy the new one, you get the new platform, you get access to all the new features, but you have a much lower power part, so I think there's gonna be a very a very significant change over at that point uh, and that's gonna be interesting to me now, stay tuned for more of our cable coverage for day one, I did have seven front page articles planned, and I think I managed to write three. Um, writing about 30,000 words on the last couple of days before launch. So stay tuned. We're going to have a full um, overview of the 200 series chipsets. We're going to have a full over- overview on the motherboards. We're going to have an i3 review. We're going to have a detailed look into why the IPC hasn't changed. and And we're hopefully going to do some performance and overclock scaling and memory scaling at some point as well we do have a new benchmark uh windows 10 based benchmark suite in the works and hoping to bring that out um in february uh, in ti- in time for um future launches i think future launches sometime in q1 or whenever amd decides to launch ryzen else elsewhere at the show big thing for me was the uh was uh asus's take on the xps 13 so xps 13 is a laptop by dell that uses what they call an infinity edge display. They have a display that essentially has very minimal bezel on three sides, which means that they've moved the camera down, uh, down to the bottom of the, uh, display. But it's, it means you can fit a 14 inch display in a 13 inch class chassis. Now Asus have done this with the Asus Pro B. 9440, now that's not an exciting name, I'm sure you agree. Um, this is a business class laptop designed for business customers, but they use a similar sort of methodology to get a, a nice screen into a very thin bezel display, into a chassis that is using a magnesium alloy, so it's really light, uh, promising 10 hours battery life using, uh, i7 and i5 processors. These are the, um, I believe they're using the 18 watt Iris Plus graphics, the new Caby Lake ones, and yeah, starting from 999 bucks for an 8 gig, uh, 8 gig DRAM, and I think a, a 128 gig storage or a 256 gig storage. Um, uh, we got It's coming in March, but they showcased it at CES. Uh, For connectivity, it has uh, two Type-C ports, one of which is for the power, and also a headphone jack. It's very thin, it's very light. You think it's a display model when you lift it, seriously. And um, coming personally from the uh, Zenbook Infinity, which is currently uh, slicing my wrists due to a very sharp edge, I think that's going to be a potential interesting upgrade. The one thing I don't necessarily like about it is that it doesn't have a touchscreen model on the uh, Asus Pro uh, B9440 i've got to a point in my work life where a touchscreen is pretty much vital um the number of times i select a window by poking my laptop or just scrolling with my thumb or you know ordering the shopping um with my other half on the sofa with it means that i can i don't really want to lose that functionality in a laptop so unfortunately the uh, the Asus Pro doesn't have that which may, may may end up me looking somewhere else if I want an upgrade soon. Um, but for me, that was a really interesting part to see at the show. Now, at this stage, I'm going to bring in our editor-in-chief, Ryan Smith. Uh, say hi, Ryan. Hi, everybody. This is Ryan Smith. Now, you had a fun experience with NVIDIA's self-driving car, right? Yes, I did. Uh, So
1: to make a long story shorter, NVIDIA has been in the self-driving car industry for some time now, and to show off sort of the progress of their technology, they've set up a demo here at CES... uh, With a couple of different cars. Uh, So over in the north lots, uh, they set up a track area with both their BB-8 car and a Q7 from their partner, Audi. Uh, So I was over there on Thursday to check out the uh, self-driving cars and even take a ride in one.
0: Uh, So these are, what, were they small electric cars or family saloons or coupes or...
1: Uh, so BB-8 which unfortunately I didn't get a chance to see in person is NVIDIA's uh, I guess best to say personal car and that's a sedan but the car I didn't have a chance to see was the Audi Q7 which is somewhere between a minivan and an SUV Uh, maybe a crossover is the best way to put it but anyhow so was over there and uh, as part of their efforts NVIDIA and Audi were showing it off Uh, so what they were doing uh, was that they were actually letting the press ride around in the Q7 and just to be clear here this is a self-driving car car, so the fact that they're letting the press be anywhere near it while it's doing anything, let alone in it, uh, shows a high degree of confidence in how well it works. I did not have to sign my life away to get in this car.
0: So, the the whole idea was that they were giving you a briefing on NVIDIA's technology, so you were in the back seat, and they were in the front seat, or?
1: Correct. So what it was is the Q7 is running uh, NVIDIA's current drive PX2 system, which is their current development system for self-driving cars, a couple of Tegra processors, some Maxwell GPUs for extra processing, a whole bunch of I.O. for cameras and whatnot, and then wire that up to a car as you see fit. Uh, The specific Q7 that was on demo here uh, was essentially set up to show how far the technology has progressed. Uh, What Audi and uh, NVIDIA did was that they set up a track... uh, Sort of an sort of an oval with different areas to represent different types of hazards. You know, painted painted line section, a a quasi off-road section, a section with uh, with traffic cones and ch- construction signs. Basically, trying to uh, give the AI a uh, high-level overview of driving. So what NVIDIA and Audi did was they trained their vehicles on this course uh, the week before CES over a period of four days. So these vehicles, they went from knowing Nothing about, uh, really nothing about driving to understanding how to drive uh, the course in four days. And to be clear here, when I say drive the course, I don't mean they know the layout of the course. I mean they can understand everything they will see on the course and react to it
0: it's it's um it's like when a person drives a road continually and then say a new hazard occurs the system can recognize hey this is a new hazard in a stretch of road i've driven before let's update my internal memory as to what this is and see remember how to deal with it re- referring to previous situations which have had similar instances occur
1: so that's really the beauty of it it's it's not i've driven this previous stretch of road before it's i've been out driving so much I know what obstacles are. I know what rocks are. I know what pain lines are. I know what traffic cones are. I know what signs are. It's. I mean, yes, they used the same course to train it as they did to show the press, just because that's where it was, but it's not about uh, it's not about knowing the course, it's about knowing how to react to these obstacles, and how to stay in the lines, how to figure out where to go, that kind of thing. So the Audi Q7 itself, and this was perhaps the most amazing part, had just one camera. A normal self-driving car setup would be composed, several cameras, uh, or maybe a radar unit or a LiDAR unit, but no, this was just one single camera, uh, Technically, it had less visual acuity than your eye, since it only had monocular vision uh, instead of stereo vision, and it was trained this way over a period of four days to learn how to drive. And it worked well. So, I, so what they did is they put the press in the back while in this case uh, Audi's engineers were in the front uh, somebody in the driver's seat uh, solely to take control in case something went wrong and to engage and disengage a demo. And then another engineer in the passenger seat to explain what was going on with technology, what they were looking to prove, etc. Ba- basically give you the spiel. And so a fellow uh, from CNN and myself were in the back of the Audi and got a chance to pop in and see the demo. So what happens here is what Once they engage it, the car takes off, drives it about seven miles an hour, and uh, it it goes through this track uh, over several laps where they change it up a few different times to show how it reacts. Uh, So it's, I will admit, it's a bit of an interesting experience when you're sitting in a car that's driving by itself. So there is somebody in the driver's seat, but he's not touching the pedal, he's not touching the wheels, hands are just in his lap, and this car is just accelerating and decelerating and turning all on its own as it sees fit.
0: Uh, and so, so, so to clarify on the sensor front, we've got one single front-facing camera, so no rear camera, no sort of um, the only collision detection mechanism was at the front. And you also told me it has no GPS, so it's not as if it's just running off of you know geolocation coordinates and driving around that way either. It is just a f- It is just a- essentially a brain working off visual information.
1: That is exactly, and that that is exactly what they want to show off with this demo, just working as close to uh, uh, human-like cap- uh, capabilities as possible to show what could already be done with current technologies and human limitations, how it can how it can drive so much like a human so quickly.
0: Yeah, no, d- d- don't get me wrong, I... I... If we fast forward, say five, ten years, and we have these cars on the roads, they're not going to be trained on four days of data, right? It's going to be oh
1: goodness, goodness! No, they'll, they'll be trained on years of data, and they'll, they'll constantly have their their neural networks updated here. But the point is just to show how quickly you can learn on on four days of data, and how how much you can do off a single camera. I mean, the reality is is that the cars that are already being test-driven out, out in California, out in Germany, elsewhere, are equipped with better sensors, uh, more sensors, etc. They face more complex conditions. But for a CES demo where, A, of course you want things to go well for the press, but B, you have a limited amount of space to work in, you know, you, you want to Make it challenging in a different sort of way, rather than a large, expansive environment. A smaller environment, but you give it fewer sensors to work with.
0: Now, now in terms of you know, for anybody who's not followed autonomous vehicles before, um, it, they they go in. It's they're classified in stages, where stage zero or stage one is the user has full control and stage 5 is the fact that there's not even a steering wheel, and it's fully autonomous by um, the sensors and the internal computers. What sort of level would you say this is? Uh, I'm not really sure it fits into the level designation. I
1: guess if you had to assign a level to it, it would be somewhere between level 3 and level 4, just based off its capabilities. But it's not meant to be a complete system, so that's why it doesn't fit in too well
0: well so so, so level 3 level 4 is you you're a set you're essentially in the passenger you're essentially in the driver's seat um but the computer has complete control and when it says it isn't confident enough to drive it will then hand the controls over to you that's kind of level 4 so you can't you can't necessarily sleep, but you have to be able to react when the system tells you to. Whereas level three is you have to take control sometimes.
1: Yes, in this case, you know it's a like I said, it's a small scale demo, so it doesn't fit into that categorization too well. But yes, yeah, somewhere between three and four.
0: Um, and Jen, uh, just Jensen Huang in there in Nvidia's keynote, which was one of the main keynotes at CES. I understand he's been after one of the main keynotes for a long, long time. So, so to celebrate 50 years of CES, he announced the partnership with Audi, and said they will have a level four production ready to go car, not necessarily on sale, but production ready by 2020. Do you think that's feasible, based on your small
1: that is a difficult question, so let me tell you out of out of all the demos I saw and I saw some other cool stuff we'll get to in a bit the self-driving car is the single coolest thing I saw at CES Yes, I know others are also showing off self-driving cars so this isn't just an NVIDIA thing but still, sitting in a car that can drive itself, and it did, let's be clear here. It did a pretty good job. It wasn't perfect. It was it was a little hard on some of its turns, but still, for a car that only had four days to learn how to drive, I felt it did a really good job. That that was really impressive. As to whether Nvidia and Audi can get there in 2020, maybe I. I really don't know. I, it's going to depend on the conditions. It's going to depend on legal framework. I think in terms of technology, maybe not twenty twenty, but you know, give it ten years or whatever. Yes, we'll we'll develop the technology to have a car that can drive itself in 99.9% of all situations. The problem is going to be legal frameworks to figure out uh, figure out liability, what happens if in that 0.1% if it gets into an accident etc etc. But yes, I believe uh, if not 2020 at least shortly thereafter that they could have a level 4 car ready.
0: You you took a video of your experiences. Is, is that going to be posted online? Yes I did.
1: By the time you're hearing this you'll probably have already seen the video, but if not then try shortly thereafter I'll have a uh, article up and a video both from inside and outside of the car showing it going around the track and doing its thing it's, uh, it, it's quite amazing
0: you're looking forward to it um, so aside from self-driving what else impressed you at CES?
1: Uh, other things that impressed me at CES. So while we're on our NVIDIA kick here, I also, uh, before heading out to see the self-driving car, I had a chance to stop by NVIDIA's gaming booth where they had a uh, few things going on showing their gaming-related announcements uh, uh, that they had made uh, at the end of Jensen's keynote. So because Jensen's keynote was wide audience-focused, It actually didn't contain everything. Uh, One of the things that didn't make the keynote was uh, an HDR monitor design from NVIDIA. So this is a little complex, so I'll break it down. Uh, NVIDIA, getting ready for HDR displays, has decided to develop their own specifications for an HDR G-Sync 4K monitor. Uh, This monitor, it's essentially... NVIDIA-selected panel backlighting system, display controller, etc., which they are then uh, handing out to OEMs to sell as a final product. So what we end up seeing here at the NVIDIA suite is the ASUS version of this monitor. And uh, so what you have is, uh, I apologize the model number escapes me at the moment, but a 27-inch ASUS monitor, uh, full HDR capable, full array backlit, uh, able to go up to 1000 nits, uh, 4K display, with a 144Hz refresh rate. And and it's essentially NVIDIA's idea of what an HDR monitor should be. This is classic, high end uh, costs cost-is-no-object NVIDIA hardware. So, let me just tell you, it's just absolutely beautiful. Uh, You know, you've got a 4K display... Able to refresh at high refresh rate, but the, but the HDR, it's just the, the full array backlighting combined with the wider color gamut, it gets just shy of complete DCI, uh, especially on the demos Nvidia selected. It next to a uh, Asus last generation Asus uh, 4K G-Sync monitor, which. Is also an IPS-based display and is by no means a a bad display. In fact, until right now, it was one of the best displays on the market. But next to it, it's just a, a times a nine-day difference.
0: Uh, I actually saw this at the ASUS booth. You know, the current high-end versus this, and you know, having high dynamic range and you know the wider color gamma means that. It's surprising how much more detail you see in sort of far off in what is you know pseudo infinite uh, focal length on images, but the reds just popped, the yellows just popped. It's, I mean, it's explain HDR for people who don't necessarily understand HDR. All right, so
1: HDR, high high dynamic range, it essentially refers to the ability for a monitor to show both dark areas and light areas at the same time. So you might have a sun in the distance that has a brightness of several hundred nits, and then a shadow in front of you that may only be 10 or 20 nits. Uh, Current monitors generally don't have a backlighting system capable of displaying this. Uh, They're really uh, designed for Windows Desktop duty first and foremost. So a monitor may be able to go up to 300 nits or so, but it has no way to modulate the backlight in a way to say have an area that's 300 nits and a, another area that's 10 or 20 nits. So instead what we get is uh, what we call standard dynamic range which, which works. You can have bright areas, and you can have dark areas but you can't have this, this incredible contrast ratio between them because of how backlighting works. And so when we talk about HDR monitors, but there's two things going on. One is an advanced backlighting system capable of, uh, of setting up that difference, but also HDR is being accompanied by a wider color gamut. Our current monitors, we use sRGB. Uh, it, it really, it's a color gamut that was specified a long time ago. It it works. It, it's not by any means bad,
0: but it, it, it governs most desktop experiences, the, essentially all desktop experiences to a certain degree.
1: It does. And... It just, it's not the complete color spectrum is the best way to put it. The, the actual color spectrum that humans can see is wider than sRGB. Uh, there are several standards to replace it. There's DCI, there's REC 2020, etc. And over time we are going to see color gamuts increase, but the important part is, when you combine a wider color gamut with an HDR backlighting solution, you get the ability to set up these scenes that are just More vivid, brighter, greater contrast, more vivid than anything you can do on a current generation standard dynamic range monitor. And for as press, this is both amazing and frustrating. I say amazing because when you see this in action, it's just jaw dropping. It's frustrating because what can I show you? for an HDR monitor that you can actually see. You, you you cannot see this on a standard dynamic range monitor. It, it, it requires something that is beyond the range of, of your laptop, of, of your phone, of your desktop display. So all we can really do is, is show really badly engineered comparisons that look artificial and but otherwise try to describe it in words. You have to see it to completely understand what it is it does.
0: So uh, the, the monitor the monitor we saw was the asus rog swift pg27 uq um so 27 inch 4k 144 hertz which uh, we understand was on a single display port cable um which yes. means that we have this uh, display stream compression which is meant to be lossless so there's sort of no no loss in detail there is
1: display stream compression uh, confirmed
0: um the de- apparently the demos that NVIDIA were using were on a single cable, so they would have to use display stream compression in order to get all the data through.
1: Because this is an NVIDIA uh, customized monitor, I would not immediately uh, rule in display stream compression unless we get confirmation. Uh, essentially, NVIDIA could very well overclock the DisplayPort interface because they control both sides.
0: Okay, okay. Um, I mean, I spoke to the Asus uh, guys and they said it was on DisplayPort, so unless they are doing something special... It- it will be with uh, display stream compression. Yeah, I, I Unconfirmed. that's a
1: question that I. Yeah, that's a question I, I really don't have an answer to. I would be surprised if display stream compression was used.
0: Okay, um, so uh, we said a thousand nits brightness, so the contrast ratio has got to be closer to ten thousand, I guess.
1: Uh, yes, unfortunately I don't have the specs in front of me right now. But yes, because of the full-ray backlighting, uh, 384 different zones, you can uh, it's, you can essentially have one part of the screen where the backlight is off and another part where it's going full blast. It's not infinite contrast, in part because you don't have as many zones as you have pixels. But yes, it it is a very high degree of contrast. Far better than uh, anything you'll get on a standard monitor right now.
0: Um, so with regards pricing and uh, and a date... Uh, what we have from the Asus version of this monitor, uh, probably looking at perhaps around uh, end of Q2, Q3, um, which incidentally is around the same time Computex, and uh, you're looking at around fifteen hundred to $2,000, two grand, two thousand US. Um, so this is premium top of the stack monitor, <laughs> monitor porn essentially.
1: It it is, but man, once you see that monitor, it it is going to be the monitor to have in the PC gaming space this year. It's just that good, and uh, like I said at the start of the segment, you know, this is NVIDIA going for broke in terms of design. It's it's going to cost a fortune. I'm sure they're making a tidy
0: profit off of it, but dang, does it look good. And uh, how many uh, monitors can I put in a hardware requisition request for? You
1: can put in requests for exactly zero. Oh.
0: That's a shame. It kind of makes me sad that we don't have a uh, we don't have a proper monitor reviewer on staff um, dedicated to just monitors like we used to. Because I really want to see how how this thing performs.
1: Oh, I suspect we'll be reviewing it, and I think Brandon Chester will be having a very fun time with
0: that one. I, I, I expect he will. Um, so, cars, monitors, theft, subterfuge. What happened with uh, Razor's Project Valerie? <laughs>
1: Ah yes, Project Valerie. So, so here's an interesting uh, item. It, it's almost better to talk about the laptop first before getting into the the theft of said laptop. But since the theft is unfortunately what's in the news, it's probably what we should start off with first. Uh, so, Razer brought over a uh, a prototype laptop to CES to show off to gauge uh, audience and press reaction to. Uh, both to sort of uh, promote their brand and to figure out if the concept design is something that they could actually bring to market. And that laptop was pr- called Product Valerie. Essentially, this is a Razer Blade Pro uh, taken to the next level. Uh, instead of just a single screen, they have developed an interesting system to allow it to have three displays. So when fully deployed, uh, displays will come out from the left and right side behind the monitor, giving you a portable desktop replacement style laptop with three 4k displays
0: this was uh this is just a technical showcase this is saying you know our engineers can do this um what do you think not necessarily we're going to put this into production because obviously battery life on such a thing would be terrible yes it, make make
1: make notice disp- mistake it is a desktop replacement class laptop you know even if they give it the internal guts of the uh, Razer Blade Pro in terms of GPU and CPU and whatnot, it still has the weight of three 4K EXO displays on it. Uh, so even if you only use the one display, battery life is never going to be great. But if you need a portable workstation, this is probably the closest anybody has gotten to truly replicating a desktop PC. So it- It's a very interesting concept. Uh, Unfortunately, the hinge system that makes this all possible was not fully on display at CES. Uh, So what it is, Razer brought a few different versions of the laptop. They had uh, sort of a, probably best to say, a working prototype to show triple monitor gaming and whatnot in action just to give you an idea of what the experience would be fully deployed. Uh, they had a second model that was also working, but wasn't really meant for heavy use, which had the final industrial design. Uh, so it, it, rather than being cobbled together, it uh, it looked like a final shipping product, but it didn't have the fully working hinge system. Razer didn't bring that out to CES, though they did post some videos of it in action. Uh, it, it's a really neat idea. It's a high. It's going to be a high-end laptop, you know. Three 4K EXO displays cost a lot, and then you have to fa- factor in the CPU, the GPU, you know, GTX 1080 or equivalent, that kind of a thing. You, you,
0: you've got a $2,500 laptop with just one display, so if you add in another five, six, seven hundred dollars $700 per extra display, you're easily looking at, you know... Four, four and a half grand if it ever came to market.
1: Oh, well, more than four, four and a half grand. This is, we're, we're talking a laptop that's probably going to be nine thousand, ten thousand dollars if I had to take a stab in the dark here. So it's going to I compete
0: mean, against the Acer Predator 21, in, 21 inch curved screen laptop for price. <laughs>
1: There's If it were to come to market, there's a very good chance it would. That's the kind of mark that they'd be going for with this laptop. But, you know, I had a chance to look at it, uh, sit down, see it in action. It's a very neat concept. I'm not going to say for sure whether it's going to take off in the market or not. I'm not going to make any predictions here. But I know there are lots of people out there who, you know, who would like to have a triple monitor laptop to take with them. They may be more on the accounting side than the gaming side. But there is definitely a group of people out there that would be interested in such a product. Financial it, analysts. Yeah, exactly. The question is whether Razor can do it in a way that's affordable. This is going to be a, an expensive, low-volume product, so it may not be a viable market product. And that's one of the things that uh, they were out at CES for, to figure out if they could get this to market, who would be interested in it what kind of a price would be appropriate, etc. It basically fell out the market. Razer does a lot of conceptual designs that don't make it to market, uh, which is both a good thing and a frustrating thing. It's a good thing because they're actually doing things that are uh, relatively innovative. It's a bad thing because you see all these Razer concepts that never make it to market. I I think this is one of their better shots in terms of uh, products that might make it to
0: market. So, conceptually, it's a 10 grand device but Razer offering 25 grand for information related to its theft.
1: Yes, so... I'm not entirely sure the details here, uh, which which models were stolen, uh, but they, two of the prototypes were stolen from Razer's booth on the show floor of the Las Vegas Convention Center, sometime on Sunday uh, after CES had closed. Uh, unfortunately, Razer isn't coming isn't able to supply much in terms of details and how it was stolen, uh, whether this was caught on camera or anything. But somehow somebody made off with two prototypes. I'm guessing it was the working uh, is the working uh, play prototype and the industrial design prototype that I saw in Razer's suite uh, early in the week, but it's possible Razer may have had uh, more prototypes there than I had seen. Either way, yes, somebody made off with with two prototype laptops, and uh, stuff gets stolen from CES now and then, but I'm having a hard time recalling... uh, last time somebody made off with something that was worth, you know, over $10,000 like this.
0: Especially, especially at that size. Now, so, the show, the show essentially finishes, uh, Sunday, Sunday evening, and, you know, it's a trade show. You can only get in with a trade pass, and there's full on blown security but the fact of the matter is when you have a hall full of i don't know f- o- over 100 companies you have so many people going in and out even after the show's finished packing up moving stuff into vans you know tearing down um tearing down displays that you know a box could be misplaced, it could be mislabeled, it could end up on the wrong dolly. But the fact is, this is the technical showcase part for Razer for the show, so you'd expect it to be under lock and key.
1: Yes, and and this is where, unfortunately, we don't have enough details to really say what's going on. Uh, We've never been around for the end of CES, so there's a little bit of assumption on our part, but if it's anything like the setup part of CES, which we have been around for, then it's a madhouse, you know, people going around trying to get things in and out on time. They've got deadlines, and especially at the end here, everyone's tired. At this point, the Razor guys have been working fourteen, sixteen-hour days for nearly a week. So I I don't know uh, if somebody made off with the box was placed in. Somebody got them, got their hands on these prototypes before they were boxed up, or what. Although I do suspect that it was taken out in some kind of a box because, besides being unique, the uh, battery machines are quite large, especially with their their
0: uh, displays. Uh, uh, fully uh, extended to to, to be honest when they're setting up the show it is fairly easy to go in a side door and walk around Um, it's it's less easy when it's say at a suite in a hotel because somebody obviously notices that you're different so yes. it's it's now the question is, you know, do we want to postulate on the potential, you know, if it's stolen, then is it stolen by an industry competitor or is it stolen by somebody who just wants to say, Haha, look what I have? Is it going to show up in an alley a few days being completely torn down or torn apart? Is somebody going to try and flog it on the black market? Um this is this is a typical sort of postulation. We don't ever go into an antech, so I'm I'm I don't really want to say what's going to happen to it because we don't know and anything. Yeah, I mean,
1: it's it's like stealing the Mona Lisa. Okay, yes, you have a, a highly valuable painting. How are you going to get rid of it? So did somebody steal it for industrial espionage? Maybe did they steal it for themselves? Just steal it? Maybe. I do think it would require some bit of skill to pull this off, simply because. it's there are some security in place there there are there's cameras so you'd have to know something about how CES works in order to take out something as large as a laptop
0: to be honest if you really wanted a laptop with three monitors you could just take USB type monitors with you if you really really needed it so there's got to be some value beyond just having a three screen laptop for somebody to take it yes quite possibly
1: and the interesting thing is as I mentioned before, even the industrial design prototype wasn't a working hinge model, so uh, I don't know if somebody was hoping to make off with razors hinges or what. If it was, assuming it was uh, industrial espionage, but what they got wasn't quite complete. It wasn't a fully, uh, a fully fleshed-out laptop, so they—it it is a prototype after all. So what they got was something less than complete. Either way, it's. It, it, It's just something that sucks for everyone. You know, it discourages companies like Razer from coming out and showing off these products to the public. Uh, It discourages them from developing something like this, you know. Does something like this mean product Valerie all of a sudden doesn't get made?
0: Well, it's, you know, they, there have been other theories as well, you know, did, perhaps it was, perhaps it hasn't been stolen, it's just been misplaced, or okay. perhaps it's, you know, extra press coverage, but then you'd argue that something actually like Valerie got so much press coverage anyway. Yeah, Valerie wasn't lacking for press coverage, I mean, did it's a genuinely neat idea.
1: You know, if, uh, go out to Razor's booth, and a lot of people were there to see it. A lot of press were lining up to get into uh, Razor's suite to see it. was it, briefing the press on it ahead of CES. It's, even though it's just a concept, it's... It, you know, it's one of those things where you've never seen something quite like it before, and it's it's neat to see it in person.
0: It, it's it's funny the story Ganesh told us. He said he went up to the razor booth and he went up to touch it, and somebody said, "No, no, no, no touching!" You yeah, know, prototype. And then they saw Ganesh's badge, said an and then they said, "Oh, it's okay. You're an <laughs> Yes,
1: we 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 do t- we do tend to we do tend to touch things. We do tend to break things. Uh, there's probably a reason Intel didn't let us touch the laptops at their keynote. <laughs>
0: yeah yeah I guess um I, I do want to end on one point about uh, tech showcases, um, which is something that i 've been saying for a few years now um, If you take something like the car industry um, at the car shows you know somebody like Volkswagen or you know and Audi and other car companies what they 'll do is they 'll put on stand a car that will never come to market but they 'll say we gave our engineers six weeks and this is what they come up with, and it's you know some something crazy like like a golf with a Lamborghini suspension and a V12 engine or something you know absolutely impractical to come to market but it's it's an exercise in saying we have the best engineers now we don't really get that in the PC and mobile space um You know, except for things like Razer with Project Valerie and what happened last year with Project Christine. Is that last year or the year before? Um, we saw, we saw it a few years ago also with Asus doing some of their sort of dual chipset motherboards, dual socket motherboard designs. Um, and I feel we don't get it in the tech industry because the tech industry, the consumer, I I mean, it's a press problem as well. Um, because the two questions everybody asks is when is it going to be released? And how much? And I know people don't necessarily understand. What a tech showcase is if they continually ask those two th- those two questions. I know. What's your thoughts on having tech showcases at shows?
1: Well, we we do have tech showcases. I I do think you're wrong a little bit in that respect. You know, this year we had Valerie We have the self driving cars. Last year we had Dell's uh, most what's now most likely been cancelled OLED monitor. So there is stuff like that, but you know. Companies like like Razer, companies like ASUS, they're in the business of, of making money. You know, if they do the R and D on a project before CES even rolls around, they probably have a pretty good idea of how well they can manufacture it, how well it'll sell, etc. And they aren't going to waste time showing something that they can't sell. Uh, Razer and these these few cases where we do see products like that are unique in that they're well they're unique enough products that you can't. Really predict what it's going to do, so you do bring it out, you do show it off, in order to try to figure out if there's going to be a market for it. But I think that's mostly just a function of the market, uh, even as relatively young as the uh, consumer electronics industry is, having a pretty good idea of what consumers want, how to present it, how, how to to hold trade secrets, etc. It's there's not as much of a need for prestige projects like there is in the automobile industry.
0: Mm, I guess you have a point. I still, I still like it when engineers turn around and say, know, we're awesome. Look at what we can build."
1: Oh yeah, and it, it it is, and it's. And this isn't just a construction thing. It's a shame that engineers in general, in this industry, don't get quite as much attention as they deserve. You sit down with some of them, you know. They, as press here, we are we're idiots. I, I'm sorry, Ian, but, but even you, I'm afraid, afraid, are idiots. Isn't it? Even you, I'm afraid, are an idiot compared to some of the people we work with. The people with multiple PhDs who can uh, who can route a, a signal in their sleep, that kind of a thing. You know, they, or somebody who can develop a hinge to allow a, a laptop to have three monitors. That's some really impressive work, and these people don't necessarily get the attention they deserve, unfortunately. But that's a procedure. Project project that's more that's more just so many people work on a, on a product these days that it's hard to single out and and recognize one person especially with a public uh, who can only dedicate so much so much time so much thought to the subject.
0: Yeah, uh, you, you have a figurehead and the people who actually do the uh, do the really really complex work. Uh, you hope they get um, reimbursed for their efforts in terms of a good salary but then that depends if the product sells I guess exactly so uh, regarding CS I mean I know it was a crazy busy year um, but did you have anything to add before I bring on somebody else
1: uh, no I won't take up any more time here let the rest of the guys talk about what they've seen good talking with Ian and thank you very much
0: thanks Ryan joining me on the podcast is a, is a new face of the podcast um, Anton Shilov he's our news editor based in Eastern Europe say hi Anton hi um, anton being not at the show um that has both uh that has plenty of benefits with regards to you know seeing what news is coming out that we don't necessarily get to see um even though he's not on the show floor uh, we we still we still get messages from anton during the week saying have you guys seen this have you guys seen that have you guys seen this um so interesting to hear what you saw at the sh- saw from the show that really interested you anton
2: well, first and foremost, um, multiple, multiple multiple companies introduced uh, in- very interesting monitors
0: during the show. So, Asus, uh, LG, obviously Dell. Um, to, 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 to talk talk to me about the Dell monitor because I mean I saw some news about it, but this is a pretty big thing in the industry, right? Well, basically yes, because
2: up to d- uh, up to now you could o- only get 8K monitors. So first of all, this is a large monitor. This is 8K resolution. Um and the thing is up to up to now, you could only buy an eight k monitor if you were on more or less open market and do not have special relationships with companies like Sharp only from canon that is a reference monitor, so it costs like twenty thousand bucks or something and then you need a proper a very special graphics card professional graphics card to run it.
0: Um, i i remember seeing one at efa i think i think it was i think it was a sharp monitor um sort of 32 inch 8k required four display inputs and that was that was just for um no, that, that that was just for the sort of like verification of 8 k recording right from uh, people people like NHK and stuff uh, yep yeah, that's
2: that's what it's called reference monitor so it has very fancy backlighting so uh, this backlighting actually consumes pretty much of power and if you go to forums where uh, those professional video where professional video editors hang out um, then you see them um, this isn't discussing Dolby monitors, uh, which also reference monitors, and their backlighting, which is uh, like uh, four thousand nits or something.
0: So, if if you want to buy it, you you better have a six-figure, five-six-figure checkbook.
2: Uh, yep, but basically uh, you don't buy it f- for home use because uh, people who who need those monitors actually work uh, somewhere in an offices and have a lot of other equipment, have a lot of other expensive equipment, so monitor may not be the most expensive part of it. As the, end of the so, cameras cost even more.
0: So de- describe this uh, 32-inch 8K from Dell. What, what, what are we getting and how much is it?
2: So uh, that's 32-inch display that's... Uh, 400 nits brightness, that's higher than most of today's monitors, but not as high as on some other new new and upcoming monitors which we're going to see this year. So uh, refresh rate is uh, 60Hz which is perfectly fine for professionals. And uh, speaking of professionals, uh, it supports uh, 100% of Adobe Adobe RGB and 100% of sRGB color spaces. So no DCI-P3, no REC 2020, and things like that. So if you if you edit videos, you are not going to buy this monitor. But if you're after photos or design or, uh, or if you're an architect or an engineer, that's the display you're going to want.
0: If If, if you want to edit 4K content side by side... I mean, uh, I remember when the first 4K monitors came out, and people were like, cool, I get to edit 1080 videos side-by-side, and now with an 8K, you can do 4K videos side-by-side.
2: Side. Well, you may say that, but frankly speaking, uh, if you need to edit a huge picture, a, a huge high-resolution picture, the bigger monitor you can get, and the higher resolution you can get, the better. So,
0: so um, be, 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 because of the massive display, um, I'm assuming we don't have... Um, Controllers that can handle this over a single cable yet
2: uh not without uh, not without uh, compression because you you can uh, okay, you okay. can plug it to any Nvidia uh, GeForce G- GTX 10 graphics card with display point, port port 1.4 and it can handle uh, the 8k resolution with 60 Hz but only with compression and compression is something that um, people like engineers or uh, photographers uh, are not going to i not going to like frankly speaking
0: uh, assuming they know about it to begin with <laughs> Well, uh, it depends how much they research what they're using. I guess.
2: I guess those people who are who, prof- who, are, who really are professionals and who know the stuff uh, are actually doing some research, especially because that monitor actually is going, going to cost five k, and that's a lot of money. So you're, you're going to do some research.
0: So 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 okay, you just said five thousand bucks. Now. If I remember correctly, the first 32-inch 4K monitors from Sharp were 5,000 back, I don't know, 2012, I want to say? Perhaps,
2: perhaps, because I don't remember.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, uh, I remember being in Taiwan at one of the motherboard vendors using that um, Sharp 4K monitor for some of the first 4K game testing. And yeah, it was essentially a brick. I mean, I'm sure, um, Dell with their design idea have got this more down, but, um, five grand isn't, five grand isn't that much given how much, given what we got for five grand a few years back.
2: Well, that's for sure, but uh, then again, uh, it's not for the mainstream, and uh, it's for professional use. So, if you make yeah. a lot of money on uh, your projects, then it's not then money is not a problem for this particular uh, for this particular
0: device. Um, I'm pretty sure we're going to get some requests for Ryan to start testing graphics cards at 8K soon. <laughs> I, know, I know it's 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 a stepping stone to perhaps doing some. Deeper VR testing, rather than actually have the headset. I guess you just whack in all the megapixels you can. See how it goes. Basically speaking,
2: given the price and the fact that uh, most of the most of contemporary graphics cards are going to be slow uh, in at 4K resolution. Uh, I yeah. believe it doesn't make any sense to test in, in, in GPUs in that resolution, but perhaps uh, if we're speaking about gamers, so perhaps it makes sense to go
0: ultra wide, something like. It's it's almost ironic that the games that perform the best are people who are not going to be end, end up buying this monitor. The Minecraft, the Dota. You don't buy a five grand monitor to play Dota. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh or may- maybe some people do, I don't know. That's plain
2: stupid, but uh, at the end of the day if you uh if you really want to play Dota and on a large screen, then maybe it makes sense to buy an expensive TV that will be larger than 32 inches and uh, <laughs> the resolution will be 4K, you can enable uh FSA and that'll that'll look perfect. And larger, so your experience will be even even better on, on that, and for less
0: money. <laughs> okay, so D- Dell's eight K. Was there anything else on your list?
2: Well, probably Asus, which is basically the world's first uh, Rec 2020 monitor.
0: Oh, this is the, the this is the ProArt as uh, as opposed to the ROG. So we covered the ROG Swift with Ryan earlier, but the ProArt is another. 4K 144Hz monitor.
2: Uh, yep, that's 4K uh, again, 32 inch monitors. But this one comes with quantum dots, and quantum dots is actually bring all the magic
0: here. This is using a, a special film over over the display to um, bring out professional color space certification right
2: yep and by the way speaking just a little bit about i'm coming back to the dell one uh actually dell sources that uh 8k panel from lg so eventually uh as far as i know lg is going to um start mass production of its 8k uh panels in march so uh, right after this test, mass production, unless it has some kind of uh, an exclusive supply agreement with Dell for 8K panels, it can uh, release an appropriate monitor itself. And it will be very interesting to see uh, how they they are going to position it. Because uh, they also can apply quantum dots on it and offer it to a different audience than Dell. Because Dell offers it for photographers and architects, and LG could offer it to... S- other people like, uh, including those who are working with the video.
0: Yeah, I mean the 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 whole color space thing. For me, it's all about high high dynamic, um, hey, yeah, HDR. Just because when uh, when I saw it at the show, you know, it's 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 as Ryan said earlier, we can't accurately show just the importance of HDR and having though having those vibrant colors come at you on. on the website it's something that you have to see in person
2: yes that's for sure that's for sure and well Actually, that uh, ProArt pa three thirty two u display from ASUS is, is, does support uh, HDR, but not only HDR. It also supports Rec 2020. Uh, I mean, supports it and uh, covers like uh,
0: 85% of it. Which is which is pretty rare for a monitor anyway, so... For, for a monitor,
2: and this is the world's first monitor, uh, I mean, mass-market monitor, that uh, that actually has some coverage, because uh, people who are working with video professionally uh have to use uh, Sony OLEDs, uh, Sony OLED uh, displays, and, and again reference displays from other companies, and so on and so on. So, so it costs an arm and a leg, but this one is going to cost like less than two thousand bucks, like Asus says right now, and this is pretty much significant because if you like uh, watch Blu-rays on your PC, I mean for some reason, then that's. This monitor is for you. Moreover, if you uh, edit videos, I mean, maybe not professionally, but s- still you need uh, those cool color spaces, then again, this monitor is for you.
0: It'd be interesting to see how they implement. Um the selection for the different colour spaces, whether it's just going to be automatic or, or manual. Um, it, 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 it's like I said with Ryan, it makes me sad that we don't have a dedicated display monitor viewer. though I'm sure Brandon's going to enjoy himself uh, during Q2 when all these panels start coming to the market.
2: Yeah, that's for sure. And obviously uh the question is how to test them because uh Microsoft Windows doesn't really uh handle this IP three pretty well and I'm not sure about Rec twenty twenty either.
0: Uh, I I'm sure Brano will have a solution.
2: <laughs> yep, at the end of the
0: day there are mucks. Yeah. Um anything else that you saw from the show? What's
2: actually surprised me most is that we didn't see a lot of uh, truly innovative and truly high-end uh, all-in-one PCs at the show, but we saw a lot of mini-pieces at the show. I mean, mini-pieces of different kinds, so from com- companies like from Zotac, ECS, and so on and so on. So it looks like everyone is... Uh...
0: Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, if I remember correctly, uh, Computex, we saw the sort of curved screen all-in-one PCs from um, Gigabyte and... And somebody else.
2: Yep. Actually, that was last CES, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Was that last CES? Oh, interesting.
2: Curved all in once with a replaceable graphics card and so on.
0: Yeah. Um, but for mini PCs, we had Asus launch their console, ESC, Vivo Vivo PCX.
2: And there's a new GR8. So
0: they, 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 these are very small I mean, uh, the GR8 we've kind of covered before, it's it's essentially as big as to fit in a bookcase, and the new Vivo PCX is designed to look like, it almost looks like an Xbox, I'll be honest. I mean, I saw it on the show, and the idea is, what, mobile CPU? Is it a GTX 1060?
2: Uh, yeah, mobile CPU GTX uh, 1060, uh, but uh, the GR82 has 32 gigs of RAM, whereas the VYX has uh, only eight gigs of RAM. So that's not exactly what the game is like. Uh, I like, but uh, on the other hand, uh, the price looks like very competitive. Then again, uh, for 800 of dollars, you get a PC that you cannot upgrade, full of mobile parts. And based on uh, based on the pictures they supplied, the only thing you can replace is an SS- is a SSD. But
0: it is uh, VR ready.
2: Uh, well, yes, it's VR ready. But uh, then again, provided that um, provided that GTX uh, 1060 can actually handle
0: uh, demanded VR games. It's 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 interesting. You and I were talking about the feasibility. You know. When people buy these mini PCs, do they really expect um, to be able to upgrade them? And you know, is this a feature that people actually were want when they buy a pre-built PC?
2: Well, in fact, yes, because for example,
0: if you if you build uh, an HD PC for
2: your room and then you switch the TV uh, for 4K and you want to uh, want to watch uh, 4K movies, then you're gonna need a new uh, Blu-ray uh, drive because because firmware limitations of uh, first-generation um, Blu- Blu- Blu-ray drives uh, won't let you use those uh, 4K discs. And then you need a new graphics card, and this is where actually an upgrade makes sense.
0: Well, you see, uh, my, my argument would, would be that you know if you're buying a pre-built, pre-built PC, then perhaps either you don't have time to organize upgrades and build it yourself, or um, you're not confident in it, and you just want a sealed system that works for three to five years. I mean, sure, you're not going to get any... You're not going to be able to upgrade to new functionality over the next five years, but it's just there it's just there and you know it works for what it does.
2: Uh well, yes, but if you if you're going to keep your system for 5 years, that's that's perfectly fine to, to watch uh, movies and play uh s- simple games. But if you if you're going to play demanding games, I mean new games, then you're going to upgrade you going to want to upgrade it after a couple of years. Because I frankly do not uh, believe that a uh, x 1060 will uh, deliver 60 FPS, uh, even at uh, full HD resolution, like two years down the road.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I think you have to play your games five years late, I think. So what what came out five years ago is now your new game to play today.
2: Well, that's, that's one strategy, but then again.
0: Yeah. I know there's many different ways in which we can take that conversation, I guess. Um, maybe for a different time
2: well or perhaps uh or perhaps at least some of those small form factor PCs for gamers uh which uh, use uh, MXM models will be upgradable because uh Nvidia or their graphics card's partners start to uh, sell MXM models on open
0: market that may be the case go through an OEM or so- or something i think
2: eurocom actually uh, offers uh uh, upgrades of MXM models for their laptops and so do some uh, us based us- um, based companies
0: yeah yeah Eurocoms pretty good for that sort of thing just to pick one out of the one out of the ecosystem
2: also again alternatively you can you can uh, try to buy uh, things like gigabyte GT gaming uh, system which is not that, as small as so species and obviously much
0: more expensive. Actually, uh, Gigabyte's gaming GT system... Explain this one to our listeners, because for me this was an interesting thing to come out right at the beginning of the show.
2: Well, uh, just before uh, 2016 ended, Gigabyte uploaded uh, information about their... um, about GT gaming console-like PC uh, to their website, and that's... uh now that system is like the volume of that system is like 10 liters and it's very large it's relatively large but uh, 8 packs um, a desktop CPU a desktop graphics card I mean GTX 1080 Um, it uses normal memory, it uses normal SSDs, normal, uh, normal hard drives, and so on and so on. So you can really go and upgrade it a year later. So initially, uh, Gigabyte is going to offer it with uh, Core i7 6700K, but eventually you can get some something better.
0: It's a little bit bigger than, say, a, um, a busy student's, uh, lever arch binder. Um, but it's colored green and it has, it's following the trend of on the desk, high-end gaming PCs that draw the air in from the bottom and put it out the top. I mean, you could argue that, uh, one of the designs that brought that to market was, you know, the Apple, Apple Mac Pro but this trend for gaming PCs is is going on we saw it with asus with their um g20 systems um 18 months ago i think 18 24 months ago and now we've got gigabyte doing it with the gaming gt and it's got special flaps on the top that open up when the system gets warm
2: yep and actually uh, we actually saw some uh, I don't remember who it was but some, piece, some PC, PC case makers are actually making uh, two chamber cases for Mini-ITX motherbots uh, one chamber is for the CPU, another chamber is for the GPU and obviously uh, the systems are small and they are easy to, relatively easy to cool down because uh, the hottest components are separated into different chambers
0: the idea is at least one dimension is thin, so it's tall and deep, but not really that wide. And, um, well, with uh, well, the gigabyte system, so I'm actually just going through your news post in front of me here. i 7 6700 k which you said. GTX 1080, which you said. It's uh, using an off-the-shelf GTX 1080 card as well. It's not a specially designed one for this system. 32 gigs of memory, you know, Pick your SSD and hard drive, uh, Wi-Fi networking, high-end audio, Thunderbolt three, um, and is that an off-the-shelf power supply? Flex ATX.
2: Well, uh, it should be. Uh, it should be enough. But then again, you don't really. You're not going. You're not going to have a lot of other clock and headroom.
0: Yeah. Well, it says here 400 watts. That's plenty for the CPU and the GTX 1080. So, yes. um, and
2: unless you, and, and since you, you can't install a lot of hard drives inside, you still uh, you still can can enjoy some overclocking, I guess. <laughs> and moreover, in case you actually do not want to buy a pre-built system by Gigabyte or s- s- somebody else, you can get that uh, new uh, Corsair Bulldog 2.0, which is.
0: Oh, oh, yeah! They 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 announced the update for the bulldog.
2: So right now they have up up till recently they have uh, these one seventy based uh, bulldog. Now they have the two seventy based uh, Barbos, and that's.
0: So, if I, they're moving from an Asus Z170 Mini ITX to an MSI Z170 ITX?
2: Gigabyte 270. Two, 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 they switched from uh, Gigabyte 170 to um, MSI uh, 270. And the thing is, you have a 600 watts power supply unit, and you, you can still install uh, an off the Graphics cards there, so with uh, and it's compatible with uh, liquid coolant by Corsair, so you basically can uh, just uh, buy any uh, of the shell graphics card and a c- CPU installed there and overclock uh, because 600 watts that will be that's plenty of power for, for, for this class of components.
0: Uh, yeah, I always find Bulldog interesting because it's the one product I can point to and say an ex Antec editor is the product manager for it. If any, if any of our uh, readers remember Dustin Sklavos, he actually manages the uh, Bulldog project. So it's really, it's really fun from, I mean, still trying to, st- I mean, I don't review cases, so I guess I can be biased a little bit, but the fact that it's, you know, Dustin's baby and his, I- his idea, and he gets to manage that project, I think is, uh, is pretty cool. And, uh, with this new update, uh, it means that we it's updated to new USB 3.1 controllers, uh, new Wi-Fi module, new audio, and new CPUs. Still sold as a bare bones, so you still have to add CPU, memory, um, GPU, um, and it's still keeping the same price point. Despite the upgrades, so.
2: They're keeping the price point, and they actually upgraded the CPU cooler. So uh, they say that it's quiet, but they do not explicitly say that it's quiet as the predecessor, but we obviously expect it to be quiet as its direct predecessor. So that's a yeah. significant upgrade.
0: Um, so 400 bucks gets you the case, the power supply, um, the motherboard, and the CPU cooler. Yep, so
2: that's that's pretty much a bargain because uh, those mini itx mm, high-end motherboards uh, are pretty expensive after all, and so are uh, so are small computer cases.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I think we're going to have to get Tracy to to do a review of the second generation Bulldog. It's going to be fun. Ah, uh, yeah, that's for sure. Well, I, I'm not going to keep you any longer, Anton. Um, I know I want to bring Matt on to the podcast next to talk about mobile stuff. Um, but glad to have you with us on the podcast, uh, first time, one of many. Okay,
2: glad to lose you too.
0: So next up to the plate, joining me, we have uh, Matt Humrick, our senior smartphone editor. Say hi, Matt. Hello. Now, at the show, you and Josh were in charge of all the mobile coverage. Now, I know CES isn't necessarily a hotbed of mobile coverage. We've got Mobile World Congress in a few weeks in Barcelona for that. But there were a few announcements at the show that you found interesting, right?
3: Uh, yeah, probably the biggest announcement was Qualcomm Snapdragon 835 SoC, which we'll probably be seeing a lot of this year in flagship devices.
0: 835. Um, last we had was 820, so what makes 835 different?
3: Um, there's two major updates to the 835. Um, the first is that it's going to be the first uh, mobile SoC on a 10 nanometer process, so it's using Sam- Samsung's uh, 10 LPE, FinFET
0: node. M- m- moving to 10 nanometer does what exactly?
3: Well, according to Samsung anyway, it's going to allow either you know, higher performance and or lower power consumption. And um, it also allows you to, to reduce size. So uh, Qualcomm mentioned that the overall die size for 835 is 35% smaller than Snapdragon 820.
0: So this arguably makes it cheaper to produce, but because it's on ten nanometer it's more expensive to produce anyway.
3: Uh yeah, I would assume so.
0: And you said going moving to move into ten nanometer means high frequencies. Does that mean we're gonna see three gigahertz on this phone?
3: Uh no. Uh so yeah, let's talk about the CPU. Obviously last year with uh, Snapdragon eight twenty, uh one of the big uh changes was that it used Qualcomm's uh Custom first custom 64 bit uh, CPU architecture, Creo. Uh, It was a a quad core uh, CPU, uh, two sort of higher clocked cores and two lower clock cores that had uh, less L2 cache. So, with the Snapdragon 835 and its Creo 280 CPU, um, instead of uh, updating its custom architecture, uh, Qualcomm. Uh, took advantage of ARM's new built-on-ARM Cortex technology license, which allows them to take uh, ARM's stock core designs and request uh, certain changes to create a sort of semi-custom architecture.
0: Uh, We we were talking about this midweek, with regards ARM licenses. ARM currently offers uh, two licenses. You either take the core they produce as is, or you take the instruction set and produce your own core. So, this is something in the middle.
3: Yes. So, you know, before it was sort of an all or nothing. You either had to take ARM's cores, or if you wanted to do anything different, even just one minor change, um, that meant you had to take the architecture license and basically start from scratch. So, this uh, definitely fills uh, a needed gap in between those two extremes.
0: So, well, why exactly did uh, Qualcomm. Move from using their own custom cores. Surely this seems like they're taking the easy option.
3: Um, well, Qualcomm's uh, official statement is that uh, with each generation, uh, they evaluate what technology is available and use what's currently the best. Um, basically, you know, with, uh, Creo 280, you know, we can expect, uh, higher IPC and, um, you know, better efficiency than what we saw with Snapdragon A20. We don't know a lot about Creo 280. Um, you know, it's it it's a octa-core CPU, so it's a a big little configuration. The four little cores are likely based on the Cortex-A53 core with some customizations, and the four big cores are either A72 or A73 with uh, additional customizations.
0: So, 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 customizations are things like um, changing cache sizes or uh, adding additional uh, functionality to increase certain workflows, right?
3: Yeah. So, it allows uh, the vendor to sort of customize the core um, to meet whatever their performance or efficiency goals are, or whatever applications they're targeting. Um, so, it's not, it's not a free for all license. So there's specific things uh, you cannot change, you know, like decoder width and um, things with the pipelines you can't change because, you know, basically that's more or less a redesign of the whole architecture. So there's some things that are off limits. Um, A lot of the things that are allowed have to do with more of the front end of the CPU. So like branch prediction, uh, like you mentioned, caches, things like that. The only thing that Qualcomm specifically mentioned was increasing size of the uh, re- um out of order execution buffer
0: okay so it can take in more instructions and arrange them as needed um usually something like that is um i know you you think it'd be actually a fairly large cache with active management which could be you know consuming power now we've seen on the pc side that the la- the larger you make that out of order execution window um it's a lot of diminishing returns, really. So it'll be interesting to see how Qualcomm are playing this because um, eight thirty-five, it's not just a chip designed for smartphones, is it?
3: No, and I mean the the larger um, instruction window is you know one of the things that gives uh, Apple's CPUs you know their their higher IPC. You know, like you mentioned, the the larger the instruction window, that's going to impact power usage. Um, it's also going to limit uh, peak frequencies, so you know, as you mentioned, there's a uh, diminishing returns there. But uh, Qualcomm is targeting uh, a large range of applications for the Snapdragon 835. It's not just for smartphones or tablets. One of the big use cases they see is uh, virtual reality HMDs. So not not just uh, a viewer where you you snap a smartphone. Uh, into it, but actual standalone HMD with uh, a Snapdragon 835 embedded in it. They're also looking to start uh, putting the 835 into Windows PCs. So one of the the big announcements here just a little while ago was that uh, you can run uh, full Windows 10 on Snapdragon 835, um, including support for uh, Win32 apps through software emulation.
0: So that that that's a direct translation from x86 instructions into x x86 variable width instructions into ARM fixed length instructions, and dealing with all the caveats in between. We've seen a few companies try that before. What makes Qualcomm think their solution will be any different?
3: Um, I don't know. And it's we you know we have yet to see what the actual applications are. Um, you know they talk about. Basically, you know, always connected PCs, you know, using uh, a cellular modem. So I'm imagining, you know, a very ultra portable laptop with uh, an always-on cellular connection is
0: probably what they're targeting. Currently, if you use the um, Intel chips, the four and a half watt chips, they don't come with the modem integrated. You actually have to have an external modem. So Qualcomm offering a fully integrated solution cheaper bill of materials, lower costs, that sort of thing. Right. Is the GPU any different in 835?
3: Yeah, it has the Adreno 540 GPU, which is um, an update of the Adreno 530 and the 820. Um, Basically, it's the same basic architecture, but they've gone in and uh, optimized for some of the bottlenecks and uh, looked at uh, further reducing power consumption by... Uh, you know, tweaking things like doing more aggressive depth rejection, that sort of thing. So, and we're also expecting um, slightly higher uh, clock speeds.
0: Qualcomm's usually very protective of their GPU architecture. We don't typically get to see much inside of it, do we, like, say, in Mali? No, it's pretty much a black box. And for the Adreno 540,
3: Qualcomm is quoting a, about a 25% um, increase in performance over over the 530.
0: Okay, so that's a combination of uh new process site updating microarchitecture but more frequency. So power considering that's that's still a that's still a significant jump up. I understand they're using a cust- uh, they're not using um arm's interconnect, are they? So surprisingly that while they're using an arm custom core, they're not using arm interconnect. Um
3: while well, there's uh, a little bit of a question around that, so... Oh, okay. The, they had initially told me that it was a custom interconnect, but we've seen some other evidence that it might be an ARM uh, solution, so uh, I'm not 100% sure on what the uh, interconnect really is.
0: Oh, okay. If if ARM's offering custom cores, they might be offering custom interconnects as well.
3: Yeah, or, I mean, Qualcomm is using its own like memory controller design, so it's possible that they could have their own I- interconnect as well. But um, you know they just don't discuss that in depth. So
0: okay. Now th- we're getting update with um, DSPs in the core. I actually just before we started recording this caught a news item that says that um, due to some of the DSPs, the 835s approved for Google TensorFlow for image recognition. That's going to lend itself to stuff like VR and automotive, isn't it?
3: Yeah. So um, one of the big Things that uh, Qualcomm is pushing is, you know, heterogeneous computing, um, and all of the advanced features that it enables, um, such as artificial intelligence, uh, virtual and augmented reality, um, a lot of things around advanced uh, image processing, um, or even object recognition. Um, so we saw this with the uh, Snapdragon A20, and A35 basically just sort of builds on on that framework. So with the A20, we saw a big uh, upgrade to the Hexagon DSP core. Um, so now we can do uh, vector um, instructions, uh, which greatly improves its uh, compute capacity.
0: The ARM core already does NEON instructions, which are essentially vector instructions. So what makes the Hexagon ones different? Um,
3: so they didn't really talk about the Hexagon 682 in eight thirty five A35 but based on the small change in number from the A20, the A20 had the Hexagon 680. Um, I would assume that the 682 is going to be very similar in terms of architecture. Um, So the Hexagon 680 can handle two vector threads in parallel, and each of those threads can contain up to four 1024-bit SIMD pipelines, whereas um, the Neon pipelines on an ARM CPU um, are only 128-bit SIMD. So basically, um, each each of the two threads in the Hexagon DSP can um, work on 4,096 bits per cycle compared to only 256 bits per cycle for a single ARM CPU core.
0: Oh, okay. That, that changes the game a little bit. As long as they do it within a, a power window, I guess.
3: Yeah, and again, according to Qualcomm... You know, because the DSP is specifically designed for these workloads, um, you know, for example, it can only work on um, integer values and not floating point. Um, so, you know, not, being able, not doing floating point, you can um, greatly simplify the architecture and reduce power consumption. So, you know, the DSP isn't an all-purpose processor like a CPU. It's not meant to handle every possible workload. Um, it 's designed for very specific things, and when you run those specific things on it, you can see um, large performance and power gains relative to the cpu
0: now i I, I know um, you and josh you guys did a, you did a write up of this and i 'd fully encourage to um, listeners to go check the website for that. but the crux of the matter is are we going to see it in phones m um, w c in a few weeks
3: um yes i mean we haven 't heard anything official yet, but i um, fully expect to see announcements of phones or other devices using Snapdragon A35 at M- MWC, and there's also rumors that we might even um, get uh, a phone announced before MWC with A35 in it.
0: Okay, sounds like you're going to be busy at MWC. <laughs> All these phones. <laughs> yep. Um, speaking of phones, uh, I know you wanted to touch on a few of the phones that were announced at CES this year.
3: Um. Yeah, there were a few. Um, again, like you said, you know, all the big announcements are going to come at MWC, um, but there were um, a couple. Um, for starters, uh, Huawei announced that the, uh, the Mate 9 is officially coming to the U.S., um, and it will also come bundled with um, Amazon's Alexa voice assistant.
0: Now, I've had my Mate 9 for a couple of months now already. Does that mean I get it as well?
3: It will be coming in a software update later this year. They weren't they didn't give a specific uh, time frame, so it sounded like it's still maybe a few months away, my guess. But it will co- but it will come via an OTA update. Good, good. Um I think I think the announcement I think that's just for the US version, so um I don't I don't think that's like mate nines in every region.
0: Oh. I'm I'm gonna have to start sending some emails and asking some questions then.
3: Um so the other Huawei announcement was the uh Honor 6X um which is uh obviously the uh follow up to the Honor 5X um that came out last year. Um this is sort of a uh low mid-range phone um that's coming to the US market. It's
0: it's uh, I think isn't this the one that they're trying to make the cheapest dual camera phone?
3: Yeah, so um I've had a little bit of time to play with it, and the first thing I notice is that in terms of design and build quality, the uh, the Honor 6X is, um, right away, it's it's noticeably better than the 5X. Um, it just feels uh, a lot more sturdy, um, there's not as much flex, um, it just it feels like a more expensive phone and, and looks like a better phone. Um, in terms of the internals, it's sort of a, a mild upgrade. Uh, it comes with uh, the high silicon Kirin 655 SOC, which is an octa-core A53 design uh, with higher clock speeds than the Snapdragon 616 in the 5X, which was also an octa-core A53. So it's it's a little disappointing to see octa-core A53 designs still in 2017 at this price point. Um, you know we've already seen the Redmi Note 3 Pro um, come with a Snapdragon uh, SOC that had uh, two A72 cores, um, which offer much better performance. Um, so you know, for most people, the OctaCore A53 will probably still be enough, but um, it's uh, definitely a step down in performance from having the you know the big A72 or A73 cores. Um, the other interesting, well, there's two more interesting things. One is that the Honor 6X still uses a micro USB 2 port.
0: Yes, I noticed that. Why?
3: I don't know. I mean, I don't know if Type-C costs that much more than micro-USB 2 or, or what the rationale is there, but uh, it's, again, in 2017, I would expect pretty much all phones to have Type-C connectors.
0: And maybe because they are going for that sort of low to mid-range, they think those users are still on micro-USB and that's what they have around the house. I don't know. Yeah, perhaps.
3: Um, so I guess if uh, you still have all... Micro USB peripherals, maybe that's a plus for you. And then uh, the other thing was, uh, like you mentioned, the uh, the dual rear camera. Um, so we saw last year uh, one of the big features for you know certainly flagship phones was the move to using dual cameras. Um, there's you know a couple of different ways that uh, they were being used, either you know having different focal lengths, so you get basically different zoom levels or by combining the output of the two cameras to uh improve uh basically you know reduce the the noise in basically low light situations just improve image quality overall you know Huawei is you know one of the the main OEMs that have, are pushing the dual cameras you know we see the the Mate 9 with the dual camera the P9 had dual camera the Honor 8 has a dual camera so now the Honor 6 has a dual camera um so it has the primary is a 12 megapixel uh camera with uh PDAF and then there's a second camera it's a, a small 2 megapixel camera that's basically dedicated for depth sensing and so they're not combining the output like they are with the Honor 8 to uh, improve image quality they're basically using the second camera to do some sort of simulated bokeh effects
0: it's adjusting the focal the thing in the picture that's in focus post processing yeah.
3: yeah so you would have you know the the subject of an image you know maybe it's you know a person's face or something you know that would be in focus and then you could blur the background um, kind of like you get with um, you know low aperture lenses on DSLR cameras
0: while i appreciate your cameras coming to cheaper smartphones overall it sounds like they've had to take a hit in terms of the other bits of the hardware of the system
3: yeah, so I think they would have been better off just, you know, sticking with a single, you know, primary camera and spending um the extra money on upgrading the SoC.
0: They need to upgrade the Wi-Fi. I remember Josh saying something about the Wi-Fi.
3: Oh right, it does not have AC Wi-Fi. It's only uh 802.11bgn and and only 2.4 GHz, no 5 GHz. Oh.
0: Why? Why? That's pain.
3: Yeah, so um I think their money could have been better spent on SOC and, uh, you know, upgrading the wireless. You know, based on what the the second rear camera really gets you.
0: Um, and price. What what is this smartphone starting at?
3: Uh, let me check my notes here. So yeah, so the version with three gigs of RAM will start at basically two hundred fifty dollars and is already available for pre-order in the U.S. and will start shipping January fifteenth. And then we'll be coming to several other countries um, a little bit later. There will also be a four gig, a version with four gigs of RAM, that will be available. Let's see here later in the first quarter, and that'll be three hundred dollars.
0: If you had three hundred dollars, what would be the smartphone you'd get today? Um, that's a good question.
3: Um, I think it's easier to a- it's an easier question to answer if you live outside the United States because um, there's quite a you know a few more phones that actually work on LTE ne- networks. Um in the US, our choices are actually pretty limited because most of the uh the phones that come from Chinese OEMs, you know, don't work on our LTE networks over here. So phones like the Honor 6X um are among the the few options that we really have. Um you know, there's the I think the Moto there's a Moto G4 I think at this price point, which I can't remember um the specs off the top of my head. Um, yeah, but I think really what you need to do is just wait for you know mid-range, higher spec mid-range phones to go on sale for three hundred dollars. It's kind of the, the plan there.
0: Oh, okay. So I know in London they've they've been advertising the OnePlus Three T a lot.
3: Yeah. So was that four hundred something?
0: Yeah. So if something like that ever came on sale, I think.
3: Yeah, or you know, like the uh, I know the Moto Z phones, the the Moto Z, Droid, the Play. Um, I think Verizon has had some sales, even like you know buy one get one free sales, so that uh, basically you know reduce those prices you know down into that three hundred dollar range, um, and those are you know going to be much much higher performing phones.
0: Now of course if you have more budget, I was at the ASUS press event and they showed off the uh, the was it the first Tango enabled augmented reality smartphone or something?
3: Yeah, so Asus announced two new phones, um, the Zenfone 3 Zoom and the Zenfone AR. Um, the Zenfone AR is, uh, is more of a flagship device and...
0: The world's first smartphone with three cameras on the rear.
3: Yeah, so it's the first smartphone that supports both Google, Google's Tango um, augmented reality technology and Google's Daydream uh, VR technology. So you get uh, both AR and VR in one phone. And so on the back, you have a rather serious-looking camera module with three separate cameras. There's a 23-megapixel primary camera uh, that's a Sony IMX318. It's got uh, dual phase-detect autofocus, um, like Samsung's Galaxy S7, where basically every pixel is a phase-detect pixel and then it combines that also with uh, laser AF and um, co- traditional contrast AF. Um, it also has 4-axis um, optical image stabilization, there's a separate sensor, color spectrum sensor for setting white balance. Um, so, certainly in terms of specs, the, the primary camera sounds uh, pretty good. And then it also has a separate camera for doing motion tracking, um, and a separate uh, depth sensing camera. Um, both of those uh, work with uh, Google's uh, Tango technology.
0: Well, it's it's interesting that in this space, because when you're in that augmented reality situation, not only do you have to get the data, you know, the photon hits the sensor, sensor has to convert it into something the, uh, the SOC will recognize, it will then process it, and then update the display, and that has to be super low latency.
3: Yeah, so, you know, VR and AR applications are... Are very processing intensive, and you're basically using all of the individual processors inside the SoC. Um, so, as you mentioned, you know, you're getting input from the cameras, which is getting processed by the ISP. Um, you have there's actually uh, um, on the Snapdragon 835, or and also the 820, there's um, there's actually two um, compute DSPs. Uh, so you have the, the main hexagon DSP, which is doing things like uh, six-degree of freedom motion tracking. Um, and then there's a, the low-power DSP, which is basically your uh, sensor hub. So it's taking all of your gyro inputs and, and uh, other sensor inputs and um, all the data from the ISP, the two DSPs. And then obviously the GPU is going to be you know, updating the display. And then the CPU is, you know, coordinating all of this activity. So basically, all the processors inside the SOC are busy.
0: So you don't get much battery life, then I'd assume.
3: Yeah, I don't. Did they mention? Let me check my notes. I don't know if they actually mentioned battery life, but um, obviously, um, it's going to be similar or a little bit less battery life than what you would get if you're playing a, an intense 3D game.
0: Which is already, which can already be very little. It's gonna be interesting have have they contacted you to be sampled yet? um no,
3: so I mean usually you know gaming you're getting around three hours battery life um pretty consistently, so I would expect if you're using um Tango or doing v r um I would expect something in the two to three hour range again you know depending on the device and battery size
0: yeah yeah um i'm I'm actually looking at the spec sheets from um when you posted about it. And uh, is this the first smartphone that's going to have eight gig of LPDDR4? It is.
3: So now there's a smartphone that has as much RAM as my PC.
0: <laughs> I th- I think we need to update your PC. Um, that's appalling. That's an appalling admission, uh, especially on my part. Yeah, well, my my laptop does have sixteen gigs. So. <laughs> um, and, and apart from the AI- AR, they also had another Zenfone three. I mean, Zenfone 2, they had about 50 different models, so...
3: Yeah, I completely lost track of how many Zenfone 2s, or even 3s. They've got quite a few Zenfone 3s, too. Um, So this is the Zenfone 3 Zoom. Um, It's more of a a mid-range device, so it's got a a Snapdragon 625 SoC, which is an octa-core A53. Again. Again, but this one is on a FinFET process, so I would expect that to have... um, pretty good efficiency
0: it that that that's that's samsung's 14 nanometer right um i believe so yeah
3: and then you have options for you know three or four gigs of ram and that is a it's a five and a half inch 1080p uh amoled screen which is a little bit uh lower pixel density than we'd like to see but um, it's probably suitable for for most people
0: now, uh what what it's interesting you mention about the uh 14nm finFET because this is like a 5000 mAh battery smartphone.
3: Yep, it's got a big 5000 mAh battery and, you know, having the, the Octacore A53s which are pretty low power by themselves, but on a, a finFET process, um this should have, you know, pretty excellent battery life. Now, it it's not called Zoom for a reason. This is another
0: yet another dual camera.
3: Yep, so it's got two cameras on the back. Um, there's sort of the, the usual you know, wide-angle camera, which is a 12-megapixel uh, unit um, with a 25-millimeter equivalent focal length. Um, that also has the, the dual phase detect um, autofocus um, combined with laser AF, also has optical image stabilization, also has the color spectrum sensor, um, so it sounds like a, a pretty decent camera. And then the second camera is what they call the zoom camera, which has a 59 millimeter focal length. Um, that's also 12 megapixels. Um, so this is sort of a similar setup to what the iPhone 7 uh, uses with its dual cameras, where you have uh, a wide angle camera that can capture more of a scene, but, um, makes everything appear far, uh, smaller and farther away. Whereas the, uh, the second camera, um, with its 59mm focal length, um, gives you a, a slight zoom. So it's going to um, slightly magnify um, the image um, compared to what you would see with your naked eye.
0: It it, say, it says in your piece that it's a 2.3x optical zoom. Isn't that more than the iPhone?
3: Well, I, I think their 2.3x is the difference between the 25mm camera and the 59mm right. camera. <laughs> okay. So... It's not, you know, when they say it's an optical zoom, that's basically switching from one camera to the other. So you, it's not like a a typical zoom lens where you can smoothly um, select any, you know, zoom range between those two focal lengths. It's just, a, it's a hard switch over. And then I think they're doing some, you know, uh, yeah, some cropping, you know, software interpolation in the background to kind of go between, but...
0: Okay. And uh, these are both due out later this year? the zoom and the ar
3: yeah so the zenfone 3 zoom will be available in february and the zenfone ar will be available sometime in quarter 2 it says and i don't think they mentioned price
0: um it'd be interesting to see if asus are planning some stuff at mobile world congress cuz i'm pretty sure we should be able to get some hands on time with the ar be interesting to get your thoughts with that i'll have to stick it in the schedule yeah i
3: haven't uh i haven't had a chance to play with google's uh, tango ar technology yet so
0: it, it's funny we've just finished ces and uh, actually today as we're recording this we started doing the mobile world congress um schedule it's just one show after another this time of year looking forward to mwc matt not really
3: <laughs> <laughs> but i've been to mwc twice and both times i've gone uh, my luggage has been misplaced um or has not shown up with me so the first time I went, I basically did the first was it three or four days of the show on one set of clothes and none of my equipment.
0: You 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 need to make fewer connections.
3: Yeah. Um, well, this uh, this year, um, I'm, my connecting flight is still in the U.S., so I don't have to switch to a European carrier, which I think was the issue the other two times. So hopefully, I'll I'll actually
0: arrive with clothing. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, well. I'm, I'm gonna stop it there. Thanks to all the guys who have appeared on the podcast. Um, I mean, CES, it's, you know, the big show that starts the year. And, uh, next we have MWC. Um, I know Ryan is due at, uh, the Game Developer Conference GDC the same week. It's just gonna be another crazy couple of months. Um, and we're glad for all our, all our readers and all our listeners who keep with us, uh, through, through the melee of, uh, news and exciting uh, product announcements. So uh, it's goodbye from me, and a goodbye from Matt. Bye, everyone. And we'll catch you next time.